Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Jim, I jumped the gun yesterday. I thought it was Friday. It really wasn't. But today is, so we can all be grateful for that. And as you just said before we started recording here, ah, we were hoping this would be a nice, quiet end of the week. But uh, never seems to be that way, and today is no exception. We've got good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives. We're so glad you're here. Grab the stool. we got a lot to cover today, starting with really big news that's getting almost no attention here in the United States because of impeachment. The good martini today is the fact that after nearly four years of uh, back and forth and stalemate after stalemate, Brexit is just hours away from happening. At 11 p.m. British time, 6 p.m. Eastern time, the U.K. will officially leave the EU. Uh, Boris Johnson, the prime minister, has already tweeted out that it's going to be a time for healing. Now we can focus on national priorities that we can get going. Uh, Jim, this has been in the pipeline for a long time. Theresa May obviously couldn't get it across the finish line. It got to the point there for a while that a lot of folks thought the only way to resolve this was to have a second referendum and hope that the people didn't want to still do Brexit. Turns out in parliamentary elections in December, they just wanted it done with. Whether they necessarily loved Brexit or not, they wanted to move on. Huge wins for the conservatives and uh the, the majority in the House of Commons so lopsided that we barely even heard about the vote over here. In the end, the U.K. is out, and hopefully we'll have a even more robust uh, trade and economic relationship with the U.K. Yeah, uh, that would be the natural next step of this. Um, I think probably their decision about Huawei or whatever the uh, Chinese 5G company is probably complicates that a little bit. But that having been said, as my colleague uh, John O'Sullivan and, and other folks like Daniel Hannon and other folks have been making this argument, the European Union started out as a trade agreement, and it kind of gradually morphed into a not just economic union, but also a political union. And there really was this mentality that not only was this necessary to prevent uh, further conflict and, and another European war, but the idea was actually ultimately the idea that European countries could not continue to exist as they had as separate states, that if you allowed them to keep making the decisions for themselves inevitably some sort of conflict would take root on the continent uh, and would lead to another disastrous war. I don't think that's necessarily a safe bet. I don't think that, you know, I mean, you know, for starters, Greg, half of these European countries barely have a military anymore anyway. So the idea that they were, you know, oh, no, we'll go back to World War One style warmongering doesn't seem terribly likely. But um, and the other thing is that as the European Union became more and more of a political union, it became more and more of a governing union over its member countries. It's not like this was ever openly discussed and, and you know, verified by the will of the people of these different European countries. It just kind of happened bit by bit, you know, year by year, becoming an ever more extensive control over the economic lives of these countries. And after a while, the British people said, wait a minute, wait, we don't want to get into this. The best way to consume information about this is on the old classic, hilarious British television series, Yes, Minister and Yes, Prime Minister. Right? <laughs> they were created in the late 70s and early 80s, just as Europe, the Great Britain was entering the Europe, what was called then called the European Economic Community, Economic Common Union, whatever it was. it was. It was one of those things where they had a little bit of trepidation into this, but they went into it because, you know, everybody else in Europe was doing it. And lo and behold, they ended up losing some of their sovereignty. More and more decisions about their, their country's economy were being made in Brussels. And at some point they said, no, 
stop. We don't want to do this. We want to set our own laws. And maybe our own laws will be amenable to what you want. Maybe they won't be. But it's our decision to make. And what was really fascinating was how many people in, in Great Britain said, no, this is wrong. We've made this decision. This place is like a roach motel. You can check in, but you can't check out. This is not something you have the option of leaving. There were some people who argued that there was something inherently illegitimate about a country voting to attempt the process to leave. Certainly the European Union wanted to make the process of leaving as long and complicated as possible. And by that standard, they won. <laughs> it became a really long, drawn out, extremely aggravating process. But a very determined group of lawmakers pushed through and pushed through and pushed through. And here we are. Now, maybe this is going to lead to economic disaster. I don't think it will. Well, you know, upon the, the referendum back way back before Trump was president, summer of 2016, people were saying it was going to lead to a severe recession. It was going to lead to food shortages and medicine shortages and Dalek invasions and every conceivable bad thing that could happen. to And it hasn't. Great Britain's economy has done pretty well year by year since then. It hasn't set off a panic. So we will see what happens. I hope they go ahead with the decision to ring the bells of Big Ben. I don't, last I heard, I don't think they're going to do it. I think at that time, you'll just simply see uh, Boris Johnson jumping out of the front door of 10 Downing Street and yelling, bong, 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 to celebrate it. And he has good reason to celebrate today. <laughs> well, that's certainly the case. And uh, a good takeaway there. Turns out when you create a bureaucracy that you don't keep close tabs on, it tends to grab more power for itself. Uh, good lesson, because apparently folks here haven't learned that lesson yet. I enjoyed the Fox News story on this by saying that uh, there are going to be celebrations, but in typical British fashion, the celebrations are expected to be muted. So, uh, <laughs> Well, they're going to get sherry off the drink cart. That's what they're going to do. Cheers. Here, here, here. <laughs> this is more important than Harry and Meghan, just so everybody's aware. <laughs> but not Harry and Hermione. <laughs> Excellent point. That's an excellent point. So, Jim, exit question on this, or I guess Brexit question on this. <laughs> um, three big upsets in 2016. Brexit passes. Trump, who was given a 1% chance by Nate Silver and the gang on Election Day, defeats Hillary Clinton. Cubs win the World Series. With four years of hindsight, which is still the biggest surprise? Cubs. Gross, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really hesitate. Okay, probably Trump. Um, although the great iron, you probably make the argument that once Trump got the nomination, as much as he seemed like a flawed and certainly completely different from any ever before candidate, most of us drastically underestimated how bad a candidate Hillary Clinton was. Um, but still, it's the Cubs. So that probably was the biggest surprise. <laughs> yes. And the way the Cubs are going, it could be another 108 years before they uh, get another one. Jim, let's move to our bad martini now here. The bad is how the Democrats are reacting to the fact that there's probably not going to be additional witnesses in the Senate impeachment trial. As Republicans and the president's counsel will tell you, there have been witnesses. There have been 17 of them. Uh, 18, if you include the inspector general for the intelligence community that uh, didn't get the transcript released and wasn't part of the uh, uh, little clips from the from the impeachment managers as they made their case. Um, but Lamar Alexander last night, it was fun to watch because after the uh, final q and a session cable news comes on and they knew that susan collins pretty soon was a yes for witnesses it looks like mitt romney's a yes they got to get four lisa murkowski of alaska literally just announcing that she's a no but as of last night she was still undecided and lamar alexander says oh i'm gonna have a, a statement within the hour and so i turned it over to cnn and they had carl bernstein on there saying lamar alexander has a chance to be a hero and lamar alexander says not only that he doesn't want witnesses, he says, yeah, the managers 
pretty much what they say happened, I think, happened. It just doesn't rise to impeachment. And the uh, potential hero just imploded in the minds of Carl Bernstein and everybody else on these panels. So, uh, Jim, we're hearing now that uh, we might not actually get a final vote on acquittal or conviction till next week. But uh, a long debate today on witnesses. And uh, let's just say that uh, if there are no more witnesses in this trial, that the Democrats are not handling it well. Uh, first of all, you've got Rob Reiner, who uh, was ably nicknamed Meathead by Archie Bunker back there in the 1970s, uh, tweeting out, uh, last night, the Republicans in the United States Senate just flushed the Constitution down the toilet. And then earlier today, he says, first time in the history of American jurisprudence that an indicted criminal who has proven guilty beyond any doubt is allowed to walk. But let's get to an actual senator. Chris Murphy from Connecticut tweets out, it's really simple. If the trial is rigged to keep hidden the most damning, most important, most relevant evidence, then it's not a trial, nor is it an acquittal. It's a cover-up. If this is what happens tomorrow, the Senate will be disgraced. So, Jim, you can see the narrative already happening. Hey, if you don't give us what we want, this is not a legitimate acquittal. The process is fatally flawed, and who knows, the foundations of our very republic are crumbling before our eyes. There are three aspects of this that I find really, really frustrating, Greg. The first is, and I put this question out to people yesterday on Twitter. Didn't get a ton of of, uh, responses. I think it, it was kind of... It was sort of a rhetorical question, but you really would like to kind of sit down with some of these folks and put the question to them. If the Senate had voted to adopt all of the procedural motions that you wanted, i.e. having witnesses, i.e. including all of the documents you wanted, if you got everything procedurally that you wanted, but the final decision on whether to remove the president didn't go the way you want, would you still say that it's a fair trial? Or would you say that it was a sham trial, right? Now, the intellectually honest thing to say is, well, yes, right? That you know, the, the fairness or the, the legitimacy of a trial does not depend on the outcome. The legitimacy of the trial depends on did it include everything that uh, uh, it looks at everything. It doesn't leave anything out. It doesn't look at things that are irrelevant. It, uh, you know, that everybody, everybody has their vote chance to be heard. Everybody has a chance to make their argument. Everybody carefully considers it, yada, yada, yada. And my sense is a lot of people, even if they've gotten everything they've wanted on the procedural questions, would still say, no, it's a sham trial because they let him stay in office. Or no, it's a sham trial because the president did nothing wrong and this whole thing is a partisan witch hunt, yada, yada, So because everybody knows, or at least everybody strongly suspects that the other side is going to make the argument that it's a sham, that it's a travesty, that it's a mockery. Perhaps they'll go on with the full Travisham mockery. Is that old from the quote that old beer commercial? That people don't really feel any need to make any concessions. They don't believe that these objections are made in good faith. They don't believe that if they extend the olive branch and say, you know what? You're right. We really should. Yeah, okay, fine. I don't really think we need to hear from this witness, but you think we do. I get my witnesses, you get yours. And in the end, we all agree that it's a fair trial, that everybody got the chance and nobody buys into it. So that's problem number one, is that nobody believes that either side is making a good faith effort to have a fair trial. The second thing is, look, it's been fascinating to see the, the intensity and the passion of the arguments about the, the issue of witnesses, because a lot of people really seem to believe that you know, the, the outcome of the trial will depend upon hearing from these witnesses. Now, as I pointed out in today's Morning Jolt, there aren't really that many factual questions at issue in this dispute. 
Um, John Bolton could come in and give you some probably some very uh, flesh outs in the anecdotes, probably tell you some very colorful stories about what Trump said and how Trump's mood was and all that kind of stuff. But in the end, the decisions of the White House regarding the funding of Ukraine were pretty clear. And so the question now is, if you get those witnesses, is it going to change anybody's mind? I mean, most people think probably no, not at all. It is probably, in all likelihood, probably 98, 99, maybe even all 100 senators pretty much knew how they were going to vote before this process started. And if you want to argue that's not the way it's supposed to work, that's not the way, that's not true justice, that's not truly objective, okay, those are all fair arguments. But we don't live in that ideal world. We live in the real world. And the real world is, is that this is not, you know, the, the founding fathers could have had this occur at the Supreme Court if they wanted to. They chose not to. I, I wrote about this in the morning, Joel. You, they laid it out in Federalist number, uh, one of the Federalist papers. I got to look up which one. I think 65, I think, by Alexander Hamilton. And he basically, basically sums up to look. Supreme Court justices, as wise and diligent and smart as they are, weren't elected by anybody. So if you have a Supreme Court full of judges who were not elected by anybody, removing a president who was elected by everybody, you're going to have issues of legitimacy down the road. If you want to remove a president, you better have the legislative branch do it because the legislative branch is accountable to voters. The legislature can make a good impeachment. They can make a bad impeachment. Whatever they do, they have to answer for what they did at the ballot box. This is very deliberate by the founding fathers. This didn't happen by accident, right? So that's why senators are doing this. And of course, the senators aren't that impartial. Of course, the senators aren't that objective. They know the president. They already know what they think of the president. The founding fathers knew this was going to happen, and they decided this was better than having a jury of, you know, of 12 people who'd never heard of the president of the United States, assuming you could find 12 of them, or having the Supreme Court or having somebody else do this. But the debates about this yesterday, Greg, were so intense because really, see, people really seem to act as if the issue of witnesses were going to decide this, uh, the impeachment of the president and the removal of the president. It's not, people. <laughs> Stop being in denial about this. This is, you know, this, I think Lamar, uh, Lamar Alexander. By the way, I don't know about you, Greg. I've been correcting myself and saying Lamar Jackson all day. <laughs> Slightly I'll point out, the quarterback for the Baltimore Ravens is not the senior senator from Tennessee. <laughs> Lamar Alexander was doing exclamation points before before it was cool, Jeb Bush. Um, he looked at it and he said, look, I think the president did something inappropriate. I think it's bad, but it doesn't rise to the level of impeachment. I don't think I need to hear anything from any witnesses and that Lamar Alexander would not be voting for additional from hearing from witnesses. That probably is all she wrote. Uh, we'll have the vote later today, probably by the time you folks are listening to this. Um, and if that goes with no witnesses, it's entirely possible by the end of the day, the impeachment process is over. But, you know, that uh, that still depends, still up in the air. It looks like Collins wants to vote for him uh, and Romney wants to vote for him. So now you're up to 49 votes and we'll see how the rest shakes out. Fascinating to think back about how the founders approached this particular issue and, and how they set up the government in particular, because actually, if there had been, and I guess with the Andrew Johnson impeachment anyway, if you're really upset about how your senator uh, voted, You'd have to vote out your state legislator because back then, of course, the, mm-hmm. uh, the state legislatures picked the senators. So it was a little bit, uh, little bit of additional layers back then. So uh, fun to watch. All right. Um, in addition to uh, the three martini lunch, uh, bringing you all the impeachment coverage uh, that you could possibly want and political correctness and, uh, uh, you know, lunacy like yesterday's crazy martini of uh, PETA trying to get an animatronic groundhog instead of Punxsutawney Phil. Uh, another good place to, to laugh at the craziness that surrounds us in the headlines is the Mock and Daisy Common Sense cast. 
If you've been searching for a podcast that actually talks about the issues and in a way that's fun and informative, uh, the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast is one to check out. Every week, Mock and Daisy talk about everything from parenting to social media, the dangers of political correctness, and the importance of marriage, men, and family values. There are two ladies who are smart, funny, and conservative. It's everything with just a dash of politics. And to find out more about the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast, go to chicksontheright.com or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting platform. All right, Jim, with all this impeachment focus going on, some folks are losing sight of the fact that there's the Iowa caucuses coming up in just three days. And uh, we're going to get our first votes of the season. And we now have one less candidate who will be vying for those votes. It was early summer, maybe even very late spring of 2017, that Maryland Congressman John Delaney announced, I'm not running for re-election in 2018. I'm running for president starting right now. And uh, if you watch the first couple of debates, you finally realized what he looked like. But he was talking uh, Democrats off the ledge, or at least trying to, about Medicare for All and other radical big government programs. But in the end, uh, nobody really wanted to vote for John Delaney. But he, he stayed in the race, even though he wasn't on the debate stage. And now, Jim, three days ahead of time, he decides he's not running anymore. So his campaign says John Delaney announces his decision to withdraw from the 2020 race. It's informed by internal analyses indicating John's support is not sufficient to meet the 15% viability in material number of caucus precincts, meaning if you don't get to that number, none of your votes count and frees up your people to vote for other candidates who do meet that threshold. The question, though, Jim, is he was never anywhere close to that, so why not at least show up and see what happens? Why get out two days ahead of time? This is one of the more befuddling <laughs> efforts to run for president I've seen in recent, I can think of, Greg, and it's at the level where Jim Gilmore is like, man, what's going on with that guy? <laughs> In part because let's you know let's you know be a little bit nice. And the entire time there's been this like, you know, dear God, what is he doing? But also this like small amount of sympathy that like the ultimate underdog. There, there was almost something like, oh my goodness, I saw, it just it just hit me, Greg. Do you know who John Delaney is? <laughs> He's Ziggy. Do you remember that comic strip? <laughs> yes. Bald, big nose, and just. Kind of lovable loser who tried hard and things never really seemed to work out. It was often very quiet. And, you know, there was kind of this, you know, there's a little Charlie Brownishness, you know, there, there's a, a to, to John Delaney. And though he was not in the debates for very long, but when he was, like the most famous moment for his presidential campaign, to the extent anyone noticed, was he had laid out a perfectly, uh, a perfectly normally ambitious progressive agenda. And Elizabeth Warren said, if you don't want to make big changes, why are you running for president? You know, and again, if to the extent you care, which I know is very, very little, dear listeners, <laughs> go back and listen to what Delaney said he wanted to do. You know, let's make sure we everybody has access to health care. Let's make sure we rebuild our economy and our inner cities and our infrastructure. Like if he had actually if you had a president who actually did all those things, you would come out of that presidency by saying, wow, that was a remarkably effective presidency. America is in a really much better shape because they're able to do all these things. And Elizabeth Warren looks at this and says, it's so unambitious. It's such small dreams. But by and large, you know, nobody noticed John Delaney was there most of the time. Uh, which was a little bit sad. And I think like one the, the clearest indicator of this, maybe the saddest sentence I've read in this entire lengthy, way too long ordeal of a, of a presidential cycle, Greg, is that he said, you know, they, like, for example, right now, as you mentioned, you, get a, you don't get 15%, you go home with nothing. So if you're Andrew Yang and you're getting 3 or 4% in Iowa, 
you probably want to tell your supporters, well, look, if we don't hit 15%, I want you to support so-and-so. Uh, same thing for Tulsi Gabbard. Heck, Klobuchar might not hit 15%. So you need, you know, otherwise all your supporters are basically free agents. So they'll back whoever the heck they want. If there's anybody who you prefer, this is now is the time to say so. And so Politico had done a big story on this, but um, Greg, no one had reached out to John Delaney <laughs> to say, hey, I hope your candidate, I hope your supporters back me if they don't hit, if you don't hit 15%. That's on brand. It's like his competitors forgot he was there. So on the one hand, I guess, you know, good, uh, you know, via con Dios, uh, uh, John Delaney, I, you know, feel, I mean, he got started ludicrously early. Nobody had heard of him. I mean, he made, you know, Michael Bennett look well-known. And, and it just, you know, and he, his message was kind of cookie cutter compared to everyone. I kept thinking he was from Delaware because he has a beach house in Delaware right next to Joe Biden's. He's from Maryland. Who knew? What is he doing and now the perfect irony is after running for almost literally close to three years, he decides I'm going to quit three days before people actually start voting. Why are we talking about it, Greg? Because we needed a crazy martini. <laughs> it's not like him leaving the race is big news. It is not. But is it basically so he knows he can't do it? And so he's going to throw his 10 or 20 or however many supporters he has to, to Biden, probably because he's on the more moderate uh, lane in this race? Or is it something else? You know, like the standard joke in this situation is, wow, I wonder which way, uh, wonder who his supporter is going to back now. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, 10 to 12 might be more ambitious yeah, it, than it really it is. It probably doesn't matter. <laughs> it's probably not enough John Delaney support. There, and again, you go back and check all these polls. There were a bunch of polls where he got, you know, zero. Like where nobody answered the phone and said, yeah, I'm voting for John Delaney. For a while, he could say, oh, the first year he was running. Well, people, have, he's still building his name ID. Look, I, I think in the era that we're in, where you get a lot of riffraff candidates, candidates who are not well-known, candidates who, who don't, you know, who, you know and I'd throw Beto O'Rourke in that category, right? You know, guy lost a Senate race. You're not ready to be president of the United States. Buttigieg, you're a, you're a, you know, you're a mayor of a small city. You're not ready. No, no, you, you, you can't run for president to build your name ID. You need to have name ID before you start running for president. That's a hard truth that a lot of candidates were just in flat-out denial about and here we are. This is, you know, and the, the, guess what? You don't build your name ID. You don't build something for a better run down the future. My understanding is actually the irony is that um, John Hickenlooper, who's now running for Senate in Colorado, isn't doing that great. He didn't help his reputation by running for president uh, earlier in the cycle. By the way, you know, breaking news for, for listeners, John Hickenlooper ran for president. I know you've already <laughs> forgotten him. So basically, He was the weird one with the mustache who kept talking about taking his mom to a porno. So basically, John Delaney's the equivalent of a guy who trains for years to run a marathon and then around the beginning of mile 26 goes, you know what? I'm just not into the rest of this. Maybe that or maybe like he trains for a marathon for a year and then like the day before the race. No, nah, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I mean, that part I relate to. Oh, Jim, we've also got breaking Bolton news. It's just amazing that uh, once it looks like the Republicans locked up the votes for no more witnesses, there's more uh, potential leaks from the New York Times. So we'll see how that plays. <laughs> wait, wait, there's more stuff. Amazing. It's just amazing. Oh, by the way, they're not offering refunds on the book orders. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a coincidence. Uh, real quick, uh, I, I know we're used to just reflexively cheering against the Patriots in the Super Bowl, but we don't have that this year, which is kind of nice. Uh, Chiefs, Niners, who do you want to win? Who do you think will win? Okay, I both want and think that the Niners will win. I think it's going to be a great game. I think this, look, this could go either way. Two, two really great teams. I think just a phenomenal offense from Kansas City and a just off the charts defense and just unstoppable running game from 
uh, San Francisco. I think the Niners win, and you're like, who am I rooting for? I am rooting for the the truth to say by the e- end of Sunday evening, we will be able to say that Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots traded away a Super Bowl winning quarterback in Jimmy Garoppolo. Ah, so, so that's that's my that's my uh, my incentive here. Um, because you think about it, yes, Tom Brady won the Super Bowl last year, and that's great. But if they'd kept Garoppolo, maybe they would have been set for the next 5, 10, 8, 10, 12 years. Wow. Nope, nope, Brady's ego couldn't take it. So. so even when they're not in the game, dinging the Patriots is uh, at the top of the agenda here. That gets me up every morning. <laughs> I don't have a, a strong feeling in this one. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. I'm kind of old school, so running and, and good defense is, is kind of how I like to win football games. So in that sense, uh, uh, the Niners are more my style. But uh, it's pretty hard not to enjoy watching Pat Mahomes, too. So uh, anyway, hope for a good one. Hope the commercials don't stink. And, uh, Jim, we'll see you on Monday. Oh, and I'll be rooting against the Bloomberg commercial. <laughs> That's the time for your bathroom break, America. That's the time to go back to the snack table. That's what you want to do. <laughs> The advice never stops here. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Leave us a kind review. Have a great weekend and tune in again Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.